Well, once again, we're back in the house of the Lord to worship, and it's such a privilege. You know, through the Song of Songs, we have um, seen a young woman's sexual fantasy. And then they had intimate intercourse on their wedding night. And then they had an intimacy issue, a conflict, and then they had make-up sex in the outdoors. Boy, I believe you have never imagined in your life that you hear all those words strung together in one statement at a church. And some of us, we are going like, you know, you're looking at the cover page of your Bible, say, hey, the Bible got say this, man. But these days, we, our Bible is on our cell phone, right? So we are scrolling, God, man. You see, the culture doesn't have the last word on sex. God does. Because He came up with the idea. And so through Song of Songs, first, we have seen that sex is not an appetite, it's not a dirty duty, but it's a divine gift. God's expectation of purity is faithfulness within marriage and chastity without. So what's the purpose of sex? It is an emotional glue that binds the covenant of marriage. So through the theology of sex, we have seen that sex is good, it's pleasurable, it's complementary, it's built on relationship and within the bounds of marriage. And yet each of us, we come with different struggles in this area of sexuality. But yet in Christ, there is redemption. And then last week, we saw their conflict. And after that, they make up, and we see that it's really not about sexuality, but about intimacy. That sex is a signpost that points to our Creator of how He desires us. Finally, we end the Song of Songs with three weddings and a funeral to understand this question, who am I? How does God see us? So let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to commit this time to you. I pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we'll see Christ lifted up. That you pour forth your love abundantly into us and you will be glorified. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is who I am. It's a statement made by Andy, who is a classmate of Christopher Yuan. Christopher Yuan is a professor in Moody Bible Institute. And in his book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, he recorded this incident. You see, Andy grew up in the mission field. His parents were missionaries and he was a bright young man. He met a godly young woman, they got married and then he came out of the closet as a gay man. So he had this discussion with Yuan, and midway through the discussion, it turned intensely personal. Why would God create me as a, a person with same-sex attraction and yet not allow me to live out my gay lifestyle? I have prayed and asked him to remove this, to change me, but he never did, and he never will. This is who I am. And with that statement, he, he brought back the question that philosophers throughout the ages have been trying to answer. Who am I? See, friends, we build our identity sometimes on things we do, our careers, our achievements, our results, our families. For Andy, it's on his sexuality. But the culture and the world doesn't have the last say on sexual, sexuality, nor does it have the last word on our identity. So we must come back to the word of God to understand who am I, how, do, who, how does God look at me? 
And today from Song of Songs chapter 8, we will try to do that. We will see three weddings and a funeral. You know, throughout the history of mankind, it's bookended by weddings. It starts with a wedding, ends with a wedding, and there's a wedding right in the middle. So let's look at the first wedding. The wedding in Eden. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in chapter 2, in chapter 1 is a broad overview of creation and then it zooms in on the creation of man. It says, God caused a deep sleep to fall over the man and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And so Genesis 1 and 2, we read all the narratives of what's happening. And then suddenly in Genesis 2, with the creation of woman, we see the first poem in history. Bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's to bring out the wonders of the creation of a woman. And so right here, we see that, you know, because we are made in the image of God, we have inherent dignity and value. It's not because of our contribution or what we can do, but because of the image of God. And that gives us a basis for human rights and social justice. Because if the issues of social justice is built on relative morality, means one culture value this, another culture value another thing, then truly we have no basis to pursue social justice. Not only this, because we are created image of God, we are made to be relational. For friends, our families, with our church, with God. And here we see that sexual differentiation is not a social construct. It is not about how you feel, but it is designed by God. Finally, it is also here that we see sin entering into humanity. And that is why we have all different views of sexuality, twisted views. It created a separation between men and a separation between us and God. And so when we understand what happened in the first wedding, we realize that all are sinners. When we are sinners, it doesn't mean that we do bad things. It means that we are, we are, not, we are unable to attain the perfection of God. And not just we are all sinners. Paul tells us that we, I am the chief of sinners. And so we don't pick on certain sins, you know. Oh, you're homosexual, you're a sinner. Oh, you have premarital sex. Ah, shucks, you're such a sinful. You have, you have, you have adultery, you're sinful. Paul says, I and the chief of sinners. Because the more we understand God's love and His grace for us, the more we realize how fallen we are. Christopher Yuan shared this story. After once he was preaching, an elderly gentleman came up to him. He was a Vietnam veteran. He said, when I first saw your topic on homosexuality, I thought, what's there to talk about? It is sin. Then I came to listen to you. I stayed back for your parents' testimony. And I returned for the next worship. And then with tears welling up in his eyes and his lips quivering, he said, when I was a young man, and if I knew that a soldier in my platoon was gay, I would bring him out and shoot him in the back, all the while thinking that I'm a God-loving Christian. But after listening to your parents' unconditional love for a gay son, and how God has worked in your life, 
I realized that I was wrong. And then to Christopher, he said, will you please forgive me? What he realized was what Apostle Paul has been telling us, that I am the chief of sinners. Why are we living in such a sex-obsessed culture? You see, we've sinned. It's twisted the way we view something beautiful that God has created. But why in our culture today do we seek after romance and sex? I've shared this before with you. Ernest Becker, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, he said that we are the first society in human history that is widely secular. Meaning we don't believe in eternal existence. Once you die, you, are, you cease to exist. But we are also the first society in human history that is so obsessed with sex and romance. And he states, because we secular people still need to know that our lives matter in the grand scheme of things, we still want to merge ourselves with some higher meaning and trust in gratitude. If we no longer have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways it occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that human beings need in our innermost being, we now look not to God, we look for it in a love partner. Sex is a signpost. Intimacy is a signpost that points us to our Creator. But without God, we try to fill it with other means and we will never be fulfilled. And that is why we need the second wedding and the Song of Songs. Throughout the Song, song of Songs, we have talked about chapter 1 to 2 is the romance and courtship, chapter 3 is the wedding, and then 4 is the marital sex, and then they had a, a 5 and 6, they had this conflict and reconciliation. And in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, just before this, you don't believe, look at your Bible, she says, she's thinking of Solomon, she says, if I see him on the street, I will kiss him and I won't be embarrassed. She says, I'm going to drag him into my mother's room. And then she says, I'm going to let him drink my pomegranate juice and spiced wine. Once again, pomegranate and spices, you know, something is going on. I don't want to imagine what she's trying to do, okay? Then she said that, 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 that posture, you know, his left hand is under my head, his right hand will embrace me. Now, you don't believe you look at your own Bible, okay? Don't just look at me, check your Bible. And then she ends in verse 4, which says, oh, uh, Women of Jerusalem, don't arouse love before it is time. It's a book end. You see, in chapter 1, she's made the same comment. Basically, at the time, they were not married, and so there was restraint. Now they are married, she's warning the daughters of Jerusalem not to arouse love, not to light the fire before it's time. So these two are rhetorical devices. They, they form a book end. So 1 to 8 is a description of sexuality. Chapter, five, uh, chapter 8, verse 5 onwards is what we call an epilogue, okay, which is the text we are looking at today. So she shifts from sexuality to intimacy. She says, who is this coming from the wilderness leaning on a beloved? Actually, this is a statement made by the daughters of Jerusalem. And then she says, beneath the apple tree, I awaken you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave birth to you. Apple tree and awaken is to arouse Okay, uh, basically her, her attraction, her sexual attraction is like giving birth. And then she says, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal over your arm. Now this is parallelism. Heart and arm, 
meaning the whole person. The seal is a seal of ownership. She desires to be owned and possessed intimately by her, love, her husband. Then she says, For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as she owes. She owes like hell, Hades. What is death and what is hell? Love and jealousy. They parallel each other, meaning when we love, it's jealous. Because love is exclusive. And then later she'll explain why she's jealous. How jealous is like a flash of fire and is the very flame of God. It's good, it's healthy. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. How great is this love? Water cannot quench, money cannot buy. Then, the next two verses, her brothers will say that, oh, my, our sister is too young. You know, her breast is like the walls that you cannot enter. And verse 10, she makes a response. She says, yes, I was a wall, my breasts were like towers, but then... I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Shalom. Shalom is not just peace. Shalom is wholeness, fulfillment. She says, yes, you may think I'm still young, but I've found my wholeness, my lover, my husband. And then she complains. Solomon had a vineyard. Okay, he has many vineyards. He has a harem of women. And verse 12, my very own vineyard is at my disposal. Thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. You know, basically, she says, you know, I'm, for, I'm, for, I'm yours. Then Solomon made a comment, and then she responds, Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or young stag on the mountains of spices. Again, we see the word spices. And that's the last word in Song of Songs. So songs begin with the woman's desire. It ends with a woman calling her husband to come and be intimate. When we read, the Song of Songs is clearly a teaching about sexuality. But why is this book in the Bible? Friends, if we believe that all 66 books adds to the redemptive story, meaning from Genesis to Revelation, it tells us slowly the redemptive history of God's plan. You know, the seed of the woman that was saved, the, the, child, the seed of Abraham. This person is the son of David. It will be called the Messiah. And then all the prophets... Each book of the Bible slowly adds to this narrative. Then what is the purpose of the Song of Songs? It tells us God's love for His people. If sex is as beautiful as God has intended, that is how God loves us. And so when we look at, at broad strokes, the Shulamith, which is the Shulamite woman, She's beautiful in appearance, marred by hardship, blackened by the sun. Unexpectedly, she met a simple shepherd who came a second time as the king. He was the son of David who lifted her veil of shame. <clears throat> Just as the church's outward and inward beauty of the soul has been marred and blackened by sin. Unexpectedly, we met the true son of David who came first as a carpenter and will come again as king. And he lifted our veil of shame. A royal prince was striking in form and stately in appearance. Then she lost her beloved, she searched for him, and she thought about his beauty. Just as in our new faith, we caught the beauty of the son of David, though the world does not. But where did our beloved go as he was laid in his tomb, so that by his suffering and death, so as to prepare us for our wedding day? She knew that her beloved was hers, and she was her beloved. And the consummation of the wedding night in the middle of the story, 
The songwriter invites the lovers to banquet on the choicest fruit of his garden. So while we do not see him now, we know that we are his and he belongs to us. On the day of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, we are invited to sup with him. And once again, we are invited back to the Eden to eat the fruit of the tree of life. So when we look at the stories in broad strokes, they parallel, they show us God's love for us. So when we go back and look at the verse, she desires to be, to be owned and possessed, to be a seal on his heart, just as we desire for God and God desires for us. Love as strong as death, not just strong, but stronger than death, to the point Jesus gave his life upon the cross. And love is jealous. God is able to love all of us equally, but yet each of us individually. So when we look at the Song of Songs, sexuality at best is a signpost. It's an invitation for us to worship God, but it can never become an object of worship. Otherwise, it will be twisted. It will never fulfill the deepest longings we have, the sense of shalom. It will never fulfill us. And so, when we think about it, if I have same-sex attraction and I cannot live out that lifestyle, means I have to be a celibate. That means I don't have sex in my life. Am I missing out? If I'm a single, I cannot have sexual experiences. Am I missing out? You know, I want to be married, but I'm not. Am I missing out? I'm married, but I have sexual problems. Am I missing out? I cannot have children. Am I missing out? We keep having this sense of being shortchanged and we ask, am I living a deficient life? And Dennis Hollinger says, life without sexual intimacy and marriage is not a deficient life. Rather, life without intimacy with God in Christ is deficient. All these things we talk about, marriage, children, sex, they are earthly institutions that will pass away. But only Christ can satisfy us. They will pass away. And hence, the third wedding that happens at the end of time, the wedding in heaven, gives us this. Then I heard something like the voice of the great multitudes, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has been made ready. In the Jewish concept of marriage, they will get married, they wait a year, then the bridegroom will come and receive his bride. That's what happened to Joseph and Mary, right? Why do they have to wait one year? To prove that the bride is pure. Right? That's why Joseph married and then a year later, oh, Mary is pregnant. But this is what happened. Jesus came the first time to save us and we are his bride. But in the intermediate time of waiting for his second coming, we are being perfected. So that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church, the bride of Christ will be presented unblemished to the bridegroom. And we realize all these earthly institutions will pass away. Why did God institute marriage? He tells us in Ephesians that Ephesians 5 talks about marriage and he ends with this. This mystery is great, marriage. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The institution of marriage points the relationship of Christ and the church. In Matthew, a man tried to trap Jesus. He says, if this woman marry a man, then her husband dies. 
He marries the second person and the second one dies. He marries the third person and the third one dies and he goes on to seven people. Now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be with all the seven husbands alive? He didn't believe in the resurrection and he was trying to point out how ridiculous it would be. And Jesus responds to him. He says, you are mistaken, not understanding the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but like angels in heaven. All these marriage, sex will pass away. And we go, huh? You mean eternity, there's no sex? So bland. You know, C.S. Lewis once addressed this. He says, if you tell a, a child that sex is pleasurable, the child would ask, well, can I eat chocolates? Because to him, the greatest pleasure is eating chocolate. He cannot imagine any pleasure apart from eating chocolates. Likewise, in our resurrected body, in the new heaven and earth, you think we will still be wondering, is there sex, is there marriage? He says it's equally laughable as the child thinking about eating chocolates during sex. So marriage is an earthly institution that will pass away. I want you to think about your spouse. Can you imagine the face? Her smile? You know in heaven you won't be married. Some of us say, hey, lucky, right? Maybe some of our spouses have gone before us. How do we deal with it? We're missing them. Ken Smith, who's the pastor that led Rosario Butterfield to Christ. Butterfield is one of the pioneers of the LGBT movement in the US. So she wrote about Ken Smith and his wife. They were married for 60 years. And then his wife, Floyd, passed on. A lot of church members came up to him to comfort him and says, don't you look forward to the resurrection where you'll be reunited with your wife? And he replied, no, because there's no marriage in heaven. But I look forward to my complete reunion with Christ. And then he thought about removing his wedding ring. He said, I pondered about our wedding vows and they are till death do us part. As long as we shall live. And suddenly my heart was filled with thanksgiving because I realized death did not disrupt our marriage. Death fulfilled it. You know, when I first read this, oh, I felt a bit like, oh, I need to love my wife more. I'm not, I'm not too great a husband because this life is all I have. And I think as wonderful as marriage or sex can be, even the way uh, it's described in Song of Songs, it is temporal. Which means that a life without sex and intimacy is not a life that's deficient, but a life without Christ is. And why is it with all our twisted ideas of sexuality and all the struggles that we have, all the guilt that we bear, all the sins that we've committed, we are accepted by God? Why is it we find ourselves that we will be at the third wedding or the supper of the Lamb? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because of our good works? Is it because we didn't sin? No. It's because of the funeral on Calvary. John 3 says, As Moses was lifted up, lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. For whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When Jesus died upon the cross, 
It was to bear the sin and shame of the world. We are accepted by God, not because we are good, but because we are perfect in Christ, because Christ is perfection. And that's the love of God. And with His death, it changes everything. All our struggles, everything that you feel shortchanged, we are not. Do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts? Right? He was reading Isaiah 53 and then Philip was running beside him and says, do you know what you're reading? He says, no. He says, let me explain to you. And then he led the, guy, the man to Christ and baptized him. Why was he reading Isaiah 53? You know, back then they were in scrolls. The scroll of Isaiah is like, only very rich people can afford. It's not like today a whole Bible we can scroll. So why did he particularly choose that scroll? It's because of this. The Lord said, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. This eunuch was a powerful and wealthy man in Ethiopia. He came thousands of miles to Jerusalem so that he can worship God, but despite his wealth, his power, his efforts, he cannot even put one foot in the temple of God because he was a eunuch. He had to stand outside and so when he left Jerusalem, it's with a heavy heart. When can I draw close to my God? And so he was looking at Isaiah 56, the promises given. How is that possible that my name as a eunuch will be in the house of God, a name better than sons and daughters? And the answer is in Isaiah 53, because of Messiah. Not only that, in Isaiah 61, he says, you have offsprings well known among the nations, spiritual offsprings. Apostle Paul translates this in the New Testament. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now when Paul says this, it's not, it's not true, okay? There's, there's some meaning behind saying give an opinion. It's still God's word. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that is good for a man to remain as he is. He says, you're not married, don't get married. You know how revolutionary this idea was? Back then, you have no family, you are nothing. You have no children, you have no worth. You know the Caesar Augustus? He fined widows if they didn't get married within three years of widowhood. It's like rubbing salt in the wound, right? You lose your husband and in three years, within three years you don't get remarried, I fine you. Because without a family, you are nothing. But Scripture tells us in the New Covenant, we are not valued by our family by our achievements, whether you're married, whether you have children or not. You're not valued. Your identity is not in your work. It's not in how you feel. Your identity is as one beloved by God. You are the apple of His eye. You are the bride of Christ. If sex is such a powerful and beautiful thing as described by the Song of Songs, this is exactly how God loves us. Do you realize that? And here we are struggling. Before I go there, Stanley Howard said this, he says, nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of the family and childbearing. There's no honour without family honour, no lasting legacy without living heirs. But in Christianity, single adults are not somehow less fully formed than a married person. Our significance is not found in our marriage, 
nor is our security found in our children. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And so in church, we mustn't look at people and say, ah, so already when you're getting married? Or, you know, the moment you give your dreams of getting married, surrender it to God, God will bring the spouse into your life. Don't be so focused on finding the perfect spouse. Focus on becoming the perfect one and God will give you what you want. Now, friends, these are not biblical. The traditionalist tells us that we need family and in the family, have your fulfillment. The liberals tells us we can live single lives and have sex all we want and have fulfillment. But the Bible tells us whether you're married or you're single, you're fulfilled because of how God looks at you through Christ. So, married life is not plan A and singlehood plan B. So you think, as a same-sex attracted people, they wrestle and this sense of emptiness. As single people, we have single, sex, uh, single sexual issues. As married people, we also have married sexual issues. All of us struggle in this area and you are not alone in your sexual struggles. But I am not my sexual history. I am not valued because I have children or my children have good results. I'm not valued because I score A's in school. I'm not valued because of my bank account. I'm not valued because of, of what I do or how I feel, but because of how God sees us. You are beloved in Christ. And so whatever that we are wrestling and struggling with, you know, when we think about church, what is this church about? Two weeks ago, I shared when we are saved, we stand naked and unashamed before God. That means we are totally known and fully loved. And by extension, God desires that the body of Christ, that we can stand naked and unashamed before one another. Of course, we are not going to be best friends with everybody and tell all our secrets, but certainly there are fellow Christians who journey along with you who can share your burdens. And if we truly understand these three weddings and a funeral, then in people in our midst who are struggling with sin, we don't say, you are so sinful. Because we are realized all of us are sinners and I am the chief of sinners. All of us struggle in different areas. You have same-sex attraction, struggle. I have heterosexual sin, struggle. Or if you don't struggle with, with sex, you struggle with pride, with self-worth and what have you. But we are not our struggles. My identity is built upon the cross, the work of the cross, the love of God because of Jesus. And that doesn't change. And so, we mustn't struggle alone. Otherwise, it's hidden in the dark. It becomes a can of worms. But we're willing to open it and allow the light of the gospel to shine in. To allow mutual confession and burden-bearing to allow the Holy Spirit to pour forth God's love abundantly, it will become a rainbow of hope. Christopher Yuan shared when he was pursuing his doctorate for his dent in dentistry. He said he was living a double life. By day, he was a graduate student. By night, he was a gay drug peddler. He had this drug addiction. And so, I mean, because he says he sleeps with one, two, three, four, five men a night, and he takes drugs to, to fill that void. And to support his habit, he began selling drugs, even to his own professor. 
Three months before graduating from his doctorate, he was expelled from school. His father made an appointment with the dean because they know each other personally. He thought they were going to help him, but in the office, the mother said to the dean, Christopher doesn't need to be a dentist. He needs to be a Christ follower. And he felt betrayed. He was angry with his parents and he cut off ties with them. See, his parents had a terribly dysfunctional marriage and life. After being married for 27 years, they decided to get a divorce. It was that year that Christopher decided to come out of the closet. And the mother felt that her life uh, was over. So she had a plan. She bought a one-way train ticket to visit him and then she wanted to take her own life. But God intervened. Before she boarded the train, she decided to go talk to a pastor. He gave her a gospel tract. And on the train to see Christopher, she read the tract and she was saved. So she didn't take a life. She went back home, restored her marriage with her, her husband. Her husband came to faith. And they began witnessing to Christopher. Christopher said he was offended. They didn't preach Christ simply by seeing their lives being transformed and the radiance of Christ in their life, he was offended. He said, you are rejecting who I am. So the parents realized only a miracle can change their son. And so they prayed for years. He cut, he cut off ties with them for years. And finally, answered prayer came one morning when there was a big bang on the door of, of Christopher's apartment. He opened and there were 12 federal agents and two huge German shepherd dogs. They confiscated all his money and drugs and threw him in prison for 10 years. One night, sitting in his cell, looking at the trash can, he said, that's me. I come from a wealthy family. My dad has two doctorates. My siblings are all doing well in life and I'm in jail. And then he saw a Bible on top of the trash can. He picked it up and began reading it and it says the word of God began penetrating his heart. Eventually, he accepted Christ. And then when he accepted Christ, the prison doctor gave him a slip of paper. There were three alphabets on it with a plus sign. HIV positive. And he says, what's this? I've given my life to Christ. It should be good life. But yet, this is a death sentence. But it didn't discourage him from following Jesus. After he came out, he went to Moody Bible College. He graduated and now he's a professor there. And he made this statement in this book. He says, I walked away from the same-sex lifestyle not because I no longer struggle. He still struggles with same-sex attraction. He says, not because my parents convinced me that it was sin and it was bad, but that they showed me something more important, more beautiful. And his name is Jesus Christ. You know, this is, the th <laughs> this is the third time I'm pre preaching this message. The third time at this spot. <sighs> what does believing in Jesus mean for you? Do we have longings, unfulfilled desires to be married, to have children, to have sex, to achieve something? You know, Christ is enough. He fulfills those desires in our hearts. He brings us into this body called the body of Christ so that we can fulfill 
Oh, can bear each other's burdens and stand naked and unashamed before one another. And this is what the church is about. This is what we want here at QBC. And so as I end this whole series on the Song of Songs, I leave you with this statement from J.R. Tolkien when he said, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a day is coming when everything sad will become untrue. If you prefer a more biblical one, from the words of the Apostle John, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Friends, we all the broken signposts in this world all our unfulfilled desires and dreams, one day it will find fulfillment in Christ when He comes again for us. And in the meanwhile, while we wait, we encourage ourselves in the Lord. We meditate upon His Word. We come together as a body of Christ as somebody will journey with you, a brother or sister, where can bear your burdens. That we don't want to hide our struggles that become a can of worms, but we open it up to love to the Word, to the Spirit, to one another, that it becomes a rainbow of hope. I give us some moments to respond to the Lord in prayer. And whatever that, that the longing may be, let's bring it before Him.